welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Last week, we heard from Enrique Carlin, son of Ramon Carlin, the winning skipper in the very first ocean race, back then the Whitbread Round the World race in 1973-74. This week, we're talking to Butch Darrenpole Smith, a crew member on board that boat, Sayula 2, and as somebody who still works in the marine industry as a naval architect, he can tell us how much has stayed the same and how much is fundamentally different in our sport today. So one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about, um, I spoke to Enrique and he was describing that moment when his father decided, I want to do this race, I need to get a boat, I need to get a crew. From your point of view, you were obviously on the other side of that. You were somebody who joined and there was a boat and there was a crew, albeit sort of coming together. What did... Sayula 2 look like from your point of view? What did the crew look like? Did it come across as, ah, oh, this might be a regatta-winning team or was there still some rough edges to smooth down? Um, I think rough edges is putting it mildly. Um, I, um, I was the last person to join, actually. And the only reason I joined was because my racing program was interrupted. Actually, I was meant to be doing the uh, the Channel Race and Cows Week and the Fastnet, and I had a, a boat that I was sponsored to do the Course Time Cap on, and then I was due to go out to uh, uh, Podachovo to do the One Ton Cup. And But just beforehand, I had an accident on a boat, and I had to go into hospital. So I was sitting in my uh, in the ward of this hospital, thinking about all the sailing that I was missing, and then a friend of mine from California rang a guy called Keith Lawrence. So I said to him, "Oh, what are you doing here in Europe?" And he said, um, "I'm doing. I'm going to do the Whitbread race." Well, of course, I'd heard about the Whitbread race. So uh, I I said I sort of looked around my uh, white uh, hospital ward and I thought oh I wish I was doing something like that and then the next day he said he rang me again and he said he said look um, when you said you'd like to do it were you serious so I said well yeah I guess I was <laughs> so he said okay well the, the start is in 10 days time and Anyway, in the meantime, apparently he had persuaded one of the guys not to go, or I, I, I don't really know the story, but I suspect that he was quite keen to have an ally, as it were, on board. And uh, so I joined actually three days before the start and met, uh, met Ramon Carlin. And of course, I didn't really have much time to assess things, but I remember Bob Fisher, you know, the wonderful uh, reporter who was by then a, a good friend of mine because I'd, I'd done a lot of sailing and he'd done a lot of reporting on it. And uh, he sort of joked at me and he said, uh, you know, what are you doing on this Mexican boat? You know, you can't really seriously be uh, expecting to, to, to do well. And I said to him, look, you know, I never... I never start a race without intending to win it. Now, uh, 
you know, obviously you have your intentions. And um, uh, I was absolutely prepared to give it my best shot. But, you know, you work with who you've, you've got. And uh, I was, I think when I joined the boat, I probably uh, got rather reassured because there were some pretty chaotic entries there, you know, boats like Burton Cutter, where they were still building the boat on the way to the, the start almost. And, uh, you know, we were well sorted. And okay, the crew was young, the crew wasn't particularly experienced, apart from Keith. And uh, we had uh, quite a motley group. And there were there were some good people there, you know. It wasn't wasn't uh, it wasn't that outrageous, and um, so you know the rest. It was it was a bit of a training camp on on the first leg, <laughs> but it it was fine. I wonder when you say, you know, you're in your hospital bed and somebody mentions the whip bread, and you think, yeah, I I know about this race. This was a brand new race. That wasn't a crude race around the world. I mean, there was very few races in any sport that went around the world. Before the race got underway, was there much buzz about it? Were people talking about it? Was it on people's horizon even after just being announced? It was very big. In England, it was very big. Um, my sister made up a, a scrapbook of all the newspaper cuttings and it, there was a lot of headlines about it. And, of course, there were the big hopes of uh, Che Blythe and uh, Adventure. Um, and, you know, they thought it was going to be a real uh, a showcase for mm. English yachting. Um, no, it, it was very big. There was lots of television there. There was lots of... There were crowds of people, lots and <laughs> lots of people watching the start, visiting the boats in Vernon, all that sort of thing. At the same time, I'm wondering, it, 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 so it was a big deal, but was it also potentially underestimated? I mean, you mentioned some of the teams still putting themselves together, uh, you know, physically boat-wise um, in those last few, few moments. Was there a realistic sense of what it would take to actually complete? I, well, the fleet, consisted of, uh, there were really, it was in two divisions almost, because there were the adventurers who treated it as, uh, as an adventure, you know, it was something that was sort of fun to do. And then there were some, some racers, and the racing people were mainly French, but there was also uh, you know, boats like Adventure and Che Blair's boat and... Um, I think they had some quite good people on Second Life, actually, as it happened, but um, they couldn't really get themselves together very well. Um, I think there was a, a lot of people, you're, you're right, a lot of people didn't really know what they were letting themselves in for. And um, they, uh, you know, somebody asked me, you know, are you, are you anxious about uh, safety and things? And I, I said that I expected that there would be um, a few fatalities. And I felt that, you know, if all the boats um, either, you know, were, were accounted for by the end, we could treat it as a success. Because 
I think there was, certainly in my mind, there was the possibility that a boat would disappear without trace. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, after all, I'd, I'd been on another race a few years before where we'd lost five people on a race from uh, Santander to La Trinité. Uh, but, you know, in those days, they didn't splash it all over the newspapers. So it, it was not a very big race. It was an ROIC race and uh, three boats founded and um, quite a lot of people got into trouble, which was a bit of a sort of, it was almost a precursor of the 79 Fastnet race, as it were. Nowadays, with the race, I mean, with every yacht race, in every sport, there's so much that I think as spectators, we don't get to see safety courses, checklists, requirements, that if you want to enter this race, you have to have X tons of life raft and provisions and everything. There's so many of those possible worst case scenarios have been, you know, attempted to be diluted a little bit. Was there anything like that back in 73? I mean, what was the requirements for you safety wise? Uh, very, very little. Really, um, you know, we, uh, there, there was uh, equipment safety rules. We had to have certain safety gear on board. But um, I, I think if, if you look at the movie, I don't know, have you seen the movie of The Weekend Sailor? I did, because, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I sometimes ask people if they have spotted any uh, safety harnesses even on board. We On our boat, um, there was relatively little... Um, uh, very, we didn't really regard safety as being a priority and uh, safety harnesses were seldom worn. But we did find that if we wore a, a, a life vest underneath a safety harness, for a start, it was easier to put the safety harness on. And the other thing was that uh, if you fell against a winch or a winch handle or a, um, or, or a stanchion or something, you wouldn't break your ribs if you had a, a life jacket on. Right. But um, I think when the news came through of the fatalities, we would put safety harnesses on for a few days. But after a little while, they, they weren't used anymore. And remember that in those days, um, it was very difficult to communicate with anyone. Um, I remember feeling that somebody on the moon would, would be actually uh, in a better position for being rescued than us because uh, you know there there were no there's no airplanes down there there's no uh, shipping and uh, you know even if we could get a radio call through which was very unlikely because we were only going through Portishead radio and anyway Sayula only had a working radio for a, a very short period in the race um, so the chances of actually getting somebody to come and rescue was remote. There was a, a sort of VHF net among the competitors, but uh, and every every evening I think they used to call around uh, everyone. But we we never bothered listening 
I used to call it children's hour. Um, although we did, we did sometimes use it as a sort of a, uh, of a, um, how can I say, we, we waged a psychological war a, a, a little bit on the others because uh, we had this reputation of being uh, comfortable. And although uh, the conditions were, were really bloody awful sometimes in the, in the Southern Ocean, it was really miserable because everyone was frightened, everyone was cold, wet tired, uh, it was difficult to eat well and this sort of thing. Um, and when, I remember once on the on this sort of net when people were on the on the radio and and I actually answered on behalf of Seula and they said, oh what are conditions like on Seula? And I said, oh it's really difficult because the thermostat on the central heating is too close to the hatchway and every time we open the hatch, a blast of cold air turns on the thermostat and it's roasting in here. <laughs> and of course, as it happened, we didn't even run the air conditioning because it was uh, rather unpleasant when you're, when you're putting your gear on, you get too hot and sweaty. And then uh, the contrast between the temperature in the boat and outside was a bit too much. But uh, we didn't let the other people know about that. We, we gave the impression that we were sailing along in total luxury. And uh, I think that uh, did sort of rather bug them because it's one thing to be comfortable, but to be going faster than them as well was a bit more than <laughs> their morale could take sometimes. It, it's really interesting when you talk about the comfort because I think when a lot of people look back you know, the, the major differences, apart from the design of the boats and sail material, rope material, and the hardware, you talk about the way that communication has developed, the lack of it back when you did the race, the personal kit that you would be wearing and how warm and waterproof it was, and then the the conditions on board the boat. And one of the things I find so fascinating about the... Um, Sayula's story seems to be that one thing that Ramon was pretty passionate about was that you needed to have a chance to feel calm. I've had a good meal. I've had a glass of wine. I've had some good company and I can sleep and I can rest and I can recover. And in the modern era of the boat, it all seems to be about taking every possible sleeping space out, saving every little gram here and gram there. Would I be right in saying that the the limited, <laughs> as you say, the limited amount of comfort, but some small comfort nonetheless, was actually almost a bit of a it was a it was a weapon that really helped your performance. That chance just to say, you know what, we're not doing too badly here. I think yes, you're you're definitely right there. Um, and I think we did use it a lot. Um, we, we sort of spread this idea that we were just fun-loving people. And Kike, <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know if you realise, but he's brilliant on the guitar and he sings beautifully. And there was another guy, the, the, um, the cook, Cantis, and at the stopovers, they used to give concerts and <laughs> they'd pull the guitar out of the boat. And uh, it, it sort of gave the impression that we were going around having comfortable dinners because we had 
frozen food, which none of the other boats seemed to have. You know, on 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 GB two, they were they were eating uh, freeze dried curry, and then when they lost their water supply, they had to um, they had to distill seawater to give give them enough fresh water so that they could eat. And uh, so we were really very fortunate. But I I think you you did. There were, there were two big things that are different. One of them you mentioned, the kit. And clothing was a huge thing. Really, it was, um, the fact was that our um, wet weather gear really didn't keep the water out. So we wore two complete sets and the water still got in. And uh, it really did make life rather miserable on board. The other thing which is, a huge difference is that people today are being paid for it. So they know why they're there. Um, we were doing it for fun. We were, uh, nobody was being paid. We were actually exceptional in that our food was provided. Uh, Ramon gave us clothing. He, he looked after us and in the stopovers, uh, if we couldn't stay on board, you know, because the boat might have been out of the water or something, we actually paid for hotel rooms for people. And uh, this was almost unheard of in, among the other boats, but we were still not being paid and we were still doing it for fun. So it meant that when conditions got difficult and dangerous and, you know, everyone was cold and, and miserable and you looked at each other thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Um, so I think that there's quite a big difference there that if you're being paid to do something, for one thing, you, you obviously get very good at it or else you wouldn't be selected to go on these boats and, um, you know, you want to see it on your CV, you, you, you want to do a good, good job for, to justify your salary and that sort of thing. So that's quite a big difference in the whole mental attitude, um, which is actually, I think, more significant than a lot of people realise. I, I, I think it's a really good point. And I remember talking to Phil Lawrence, the current race director, and he was saying that the gulf between passionate amateur and paid professional in our sport has never been bigger. It's never been a bigger mountain to climb. If you want to break into the ocean race, you want to break into anything. And I do know that there are some young people who have done the race uh, for free because they've wanted to do it. But you are right, it is a means to an end. Um, without wanting to tempt you to sound like a, a grumpy old man, what what is it that those young people who maybe are chasing a paycheck or at least wanting to make this the way that they earn their salary, what might they be missing in going the other route and just saying, I'm just going to do this purely for the love, if indeed that is possible for them? Oh, I, I, they are missing a lot of fun. They really are, because uh, these days people don't really let their hair down and get into trouble the way that we used to do <laughs> because they feel that they're representing something. And if, if somebody, you know, if, if somebody's on a, a Volvo race boat with some product name across his back, 
and he has to be bailed out of the local jail for some um, absurd reason. Uh, you know, like, I mean, we, we had a run-in with the police in, in uh, Rio um, over that incident with the, with the stewardesses on yes. Copacabana. And, uh, you know, you can't really imagine that happening today. Hang, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let me just put the brakes on there because I've just got to mention two things while we're in the middle of that sentence. One, this is almost uncanny because I don't want to go into the rumour here, but actually there have been sailors in the recent edition that did end up in jail with logos on their back celebrating a little bit too hard. So I just need to put that one out there. But the second one is you cannot say we ended up in trouble with the law because of that incident with the stewardesses. I really feel like you need to put that into picture because you've made it sound quite evil when actually it wasn't that way at all. So can you kind of colour that in a little bit? Well, uh, no, I I mean, that was just a... (laughs) A typical one that's easy to to remember because it's in the film, but uh, there were a number of other instances um, where you feel that uh, the amateurs, uh, the past amateurs, uh, were uh, having a, a really good time when when they were in port, in a way that I think some of the uh, the, the professionals of today. Um, they fear to tread a little bit because they don't want the the wrath of the sponsors to come down on them. They, do, they, I think they are representing um, something, and they they want to be seen as professionals. Perhaps it's it's a personal thing as much as a responsibility towards the, their paymasters, but. Um, I I I, 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 no, I think I think you're absolutely right, and it's very interesting to me that for all the things that we've always talked about about the race evolving, one of the things that we will now in the future we'll have to say, well, it was different back in '73 because in '73 you were you got arrested for skinny dipping on Cabana Beach when there was no nudity allowed. So I think that's perfect. We've now got a, a apart from the kit and the communication, that's one of the other differences. As well. <laughs> I think there is another thing, is that it's rather fun that somebody like Ramon Carlin can pop up from nowhere and end up sailing against the greatest sailing names of the day. You know, he was sailing against Eric Tabley, Che Blythe, um, Rob James, or, you know, Jeffrey Williams. These guys, which, okay, they're a little bit lost to history, but um, they were the top guys of the day and I think it's rather fun that somebody can uh, sort of it's a bit like being able to play against uh, Nadal in tennis you just you know step up and and you're there in the in the top flight Um, I think it was inevitable that the sport would go this way you know, if it would either die out completely or move in this direction. And sometimes I think that I was perhaps born a little bit too early because I would rather like to be a professional sailor, I think, these days and make a career of it. But on the other hand, um, I think another thing that we used to do as amateurs at the sort of upper level of amateur sailing was that 
we had to get quite good at making a living in between the races. And uh, we used to be, we used to build boats, rig boats, make sails, uh, do deliveries, do all sorts of things to keep ourselves in beer money. And uh, I think these days, I, I don't know, I, well, the problem is I don't know all that many professional sailors now because I don't move in those circles anymore. But um, I wonder how many of them actually do all the work that's necessary to prepare their boats. You know, one, you see lots of, um, you know, support staff who come along and, um, you know, repair stuff. And um, I was, uh, well, Keith was repairing sails all the way around and uh, I was, you know, splicing rigging and doing stuff like that. Um, and I think uh, these days perhaps they rely a little bit more on professional help to sort of, maybe it's just become too sophisticated and the, the normal people really can't, uh, you know, you can't develop the, the talent to be able to fix stuff anymore. But, um, and then again, of course, there are lots and lots of exceptions to that because some of the boat builders do do the racing and, um, it is. I think, I think obviously do as well. I think there there is seen as a bit of a bit of a possible route into the race. You you talked about <laughs> so you have Sayula too with this, as you say, giving off this attitude of well, the guitar's out, we've got the heating on, drinking our wine, eating our our roast beef. It's not too bad, but obviously, actually under the hood there was a crew and a boat that was able to do something that these other teams couldn't quite match. So what do you think, looking back, what was it that was going on on board that boat that was actually keeping you, oh, we've just had a, another good leg and, and another good leg and we're leading now. You know, What was it that was making that, this sort of ramshackle boat, if you like, actually perform much better than a lot of people predicted? Well, actually, it all comes down to Ramon, strangely enough. He was really well organised. And when you think that, you know, when we were coming into port at the end of each leg, the day before, he would make a list of everything that we needed for the following leg. And uh, that meant that when we came in, uh, he would... Uh, give the list to somebody who would go off to a, to a supermarket or a butcher's shop or whoever it was, and we would organise for all the stores to be delivered the day before the next start. And then uh, we might go off to a vineyard and taste some wine that we were <laughs> going to take, but we would have the boat ready for the next leg, generally two days after arriving. So it meant that we had a very relaxed time in all the stopovers. What happened on the other boats was generally they would arrive and the crew would all get drunk for a couple of days and then they'd pick themselves up and think, oh, you know, we're going to have to do some stuff. And then they'd look for a sailmaker or a you know, boat yard to do whatever repairs had to be done. 
I think um, also we were very lucky because Ramon had had picked a very very good boat. You know that that was the right boat for the job. This was it a was, Swan sixty five. The Swan sixty five, yes, because it was within his budget, and the other boats, the bigger boats, were generally the biggest boat that the owner could afford, or the you know, whoever was in charge, the biggest boat that they could afford, which naturally meant that they were actually struggling to pay for additional sales or right. or the running of the boat. Whereas Ramon had got a boat which he could afford quite easily. And also the boat was was quite well set up. Um, before the race, I was earning my living as a sort of... Um, as a consultant, as it were, because I was optimizing um, IOR ratings and advising people on how to make their boats go faster or just, you know, generally sort of checking that they were correctly trimmed and there there weren't any penalties in the rating and, and stuff. And uh, when I got onto the boat, the, the, the boat had, pretty much it was perfectly set up even before I arrived. So I didn't really have to do anything. I think I might have altered one or two measurements on the, you know, moving black bands or something. But basically the boat was was there because Olin Stevens had designed the boat. He knew the rule. And the boat was a very good IOR boat. The race was a handicap race. It was to be raced under the IOR. And I was very surprised in the, you know, before I went to hospital, before I, I had my accident, I was working a lot on the boats that did the fastnet. And in fact, uh, the top, the, the, the first in the, in the first, in class one, two, and three, they were all my clients. And I was expecting to have Whitbread boats come to me because you know, a, a, a few tenths of a foot on a rating can mean hours or days yeah. on, the, on that race. But nobody seemed to do that. They weren't, they weren't treating it as a, um, as a race. You know, they weren't doing the sort of things that you would do just naturally um, if you really were serious about winning the race. Um, I think another thing was that um, a lot of the boats actually had um, had kind of uh, almost discipline problems. There were people who refused to go on deck, and uh, one boat had a mutiny. I, I'm not, I'm not going to mention names, but after the race, I did a I went around all the competitors with a big questionnaire because I thought I might. Uh, be forced into doing this race again <laughs> uh, or at, at least actually it was very good because I, I got um, I, I got contracted by some of the boats in the next race to advise them on on various aspects and by having um, a database of what had gone on on the other boats as well as our own uh, was quite useful. One of the things that was interesting was that all the people who sail around the world on catches said that they would prefer to sail around the world on sloops, and those 
who sailed on sloops said that they would prefer to have a catch next time. But um, uh, I, I did uncover some rather strange stories about uh, boats where the, the discipline didn't really function. Sometimes they found that the, that the guys who are uh, running the boat weren't actually quite as good as the guys at a lower level. Uh, that old and problem. The guys who at the lower level started arguing with the with the management, um, and I think we were lucky. Both on Sayula and Grand Louis was the same in that it was a family boat. There was a clear hierarchy where the boss was the owner, and. Um, there was a very good gradient of experience and um, expertise. And um, Ramon was brilliant because he actually didn't come on deck all that much. He didn't, he didn't spend, he wasn't part of, of the watchkeeping, for instance. But if somebody was feeling a bit poorly, they could stay uh, in their bunks for, a, for, for the day and he would take their watches or... <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, in the, if you came off the deck in, in the Southern Ocean, you, you would just come below and take your gear off and sort of crash out. And he would then go around and pick up everyone's foul weather gear and hang it up and dry it and this sort of thing. He was absolutely magic. And I think that although, um, you know, we were all, I think, pleased with our performance at the end but it, it all really comes down to him he was an extraordinary man and um, I think we we all got to um, we all had a lot of respect for him is there anything that made the victory for you guys um, any more sweet because, as you say, when at the beginning, I'm going to do this race on this boat, people were sceptical as to why you would assign yourself with that campaign. When people have sort of written you off or, you know, downgraded your chances, when you're then victorious, is it that little bit more satisfying? I think um, one, of, one of the things that was rather rather satisfying was that um, the the boat adventure, the one that came second, uh, some people complained that they were a little bit arrogant in that they, uh, they had a very big budget. They, at all the stopovers, they didn't mix very much with the other competitors. <laughs> I mean, partly because they change crews in each stopover. But uh, And then, um, you know, they, in Sydney, halfway around the, the, the course, they replaced all their rod rigging. They just sent it all back to England and got a whole new lot because they'd, they'd ordered six of these boats for the services. And they borrowed the sails of the subsequent boats and the rigging from the subsequent boats to help adventure get round the world. And there was a lot of sort of mumbling among the, the English boats that not only are they a 
difficult to deal with on the water, but it's their taxes that are going to finance this boat. <laughs> After the race, I think one of the things that was quite nice was the way that some of the people said that they were very glad that Adventure didn't win because it was a Royal Naval Sailing Association race. They were a Royal Naval Sailing Association boat. They had this huge budget. They had uh, a lot of resources in each of the stopovers because they were staying in the Navy bases rather than in the yacht clubs where we, we were. And also, I think, um, Kike and Cantis and uh, all the Mexicans were very, very popular in the, uh, in the stopovers. You know, everyone loved them. They, they're such lovely people. And I'm sure everybody, it's always easy to root for that underdog as well. And even, I mean, even today with people following the race, the people that are trying to break the mould, shall we say, are always those ones that tend to sort of pick up more fans. But one thing that I do want to ask you about, and I know that your time is precious, but one thing I really want to ask you about is we've talked a bit about the performance and the fact that you won, you were victorious and you were there. But of course, as you said, as you said at the beginning, for a lot of people, it was just, I, we want to get round the world. And yes, you guys did. And yes, you were victorious. But you almost didn't manage to get round. I mean, one of the things was, I mean, just the capsize that you guys had in the Southern Ocean I, you know, from what I understand about it, was as bad as bad and frightening that I think a capsize could be. <laughs> frightening doesn't begin to describe it. Um, it's uh, yeah, it is. It was absolutely terrifying, and uh, particularly since there was really nothing we could do about it. I mean, it was just. A bloody great wave and you know we were just rolled over um i think uh uh what, what was the rest of the question well no i'm just wondering what that what that was like and whether that oh um yeah i, I don't want to yeah, i don't want to be I, too I subtle. Think we did it did it did slow us down uh, mm. for, for a day or so we we really didn't get back into the racing one of the things that I do find was quite interesting is that we we obviously got to know the other crews quite well because we're stop in the stopovers. And the other people were always coming in telling us how fast their boats were. But we always felt that our boat was really slow. And Keith and me were always trying to get the damn thing to, to actually <laughs> uh, to go faster, you know, we were always frustrated. And I think that was another, um, perhaps it was an illustration of a different attitude. Um, uh, once again, occasionally, um, Ramon uh, actually got us to back off a bit. And I think it's just as well, because by the end, the boat was beginning to fall apart. And I'm pretty sure that if I'd been given a free hand and uh, I would have broken the boat, uh, uh, even though the Swan was a, a very robust boat, it was really very well 
equipped, very well found. But on the other hand, some of the other boats were, and the other boats, uh, a lot of them fell apart. Well, I, I mean, the old saying is, the perfect boat is a boat that crosses the finish line and then breaks in two and sinks. It's got just as much structure as you need. Well, and I've, I've seen a picture of the forestay, the headstay of the boat when you guys were on that final push. I mean, it, it, I mean, it was it, the, the boat had taken a beating. I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you a story about that is that um, when we came into the Solent, we, we were pretty sure we were going to win the race. We had, uh, I think, 48 hours in hand. And the final run to the finish, it was uh, actually a reach to the finish, was with the tide under us uh, going up towards the harbour of, of Portsmouth. And, uh, you know, whatever happened, we, we were going to cross the line, we were going to win. And I said to uh, Ramon, I said, look, there are thousands of people on shore here. And there really were. The place was packed, lots and lots of spectator boats and things. I said, you know, the fourth day is just about done. It's just about gone. And I said it, it would be very easy for us to break the rig here. And I, I said to him, look, I, you know, I know how to do it. We can crank the backstay on, we can release the runners, we can bring the, the rig down. And these guys are going to remember this race for about a week, but we'll be on the, on the front page of every newspaper in the world if we finish this race winning with the rig over the side. <laughs> And he looked at me for a while, and I, I expected him to say no straight away, but he actually thought about it. And then he said, <laughs> no, because the boat isn't insured. And that, that was the first time that we heard that he hadn't insured the boat. And afterwards, he told me, he said, look, the, the only thing worth uh, insuring against is a total loss. And uh, if we have a total loss, none of us are going to survive to, to pick up the the payoff. So um, anyway, that was an aside. <laughs> I, I actually, in retrospect, I'm not even sure if I could have brought the rig down, but I, I think I might have been able to. <laughs> I think, but it's amazing how well your eye was then for how long lasting the dramatic moments in the race are, because you're absolutely right. The ones that really, in any sport, let's be honest, are the ones where it goes catastrophically uh, off script. Um, I'm, I'm pleased you didn't drop the rig because, you know, the boat is still, I mean, I, I'm sure it's got a new rig now, but the boat is going strong. I mean, Enrico was saying that they're still sailing it, they're still out there, the boat's still taking to the water and it's still being used and, and loved. Is that with the modern era of boats changing hands and then essentially you know, getting pushed beyond the limit and breaking. Um, is it nice to know that that boat, that meant a lot to you, I'm sure, but also has meant so much to the history of ocean racing, is it nice to know that that boat is still delivering? Very, very much so. In fact, uh, Kike rang me and uh, he was talking about the boat and he was worried about one or two aspects of the boat. And he was he, he said to me something which I... I thought I'd never hear from any member of his family because he said he was thinking of selling it. 
And anyway, I, I chatted to him and by the end, we'd agreed that uh, the, the, we've got this sort of very tentative plan that I'll fly over to Mexico and we'll pick up a crew and we'll sail the boat to Alicante. Um, because apparently there's a museum or something, a museum of the ocean race. And we thought it would be rather nice to leave the boat there for a couple of years. And then uh, he'll pick it up and take it home again. But um, I, I, I think this is a little bit more, well, I'm hoping anyway, that this is just a little bit more than, than an idea because he's been emailing me about it and he's been saying to people in the office, I know. And as a fan of the race, I can say that... Um, the museum is is great and it's got some really incredible exhibits, but having the original trophy and having Sayula parked outside and there to see um, next to the sixty that's on the uh, that's on the hard outside, I think there's a, a VO seventy on a roundabout in Alicante. It would be amazing to sort of chart the path between these boats. So please. Make sure you're on that boat and please chart a good course to Alicante because that would be incredible. Well, I, I, I certainly hope we can do that. And also I hope that I can do, if not all the delivery, certainly uh, a big chunk of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the, for your sake, that the, uh, the menu is still as good as it was rumoured to be among the fleet. Red meat, lovely wine. I think that'd be perfect. Um, I, I know I need to let you go, and it's so fascinating hearing these old stories. So as a final, as a final question, with the huge gulf between what your experience was like then, and every sailor's experience, of course, will be different, but with the 73 race and then what the professional sailors experience now if there was a, a small piece of advice if there was a little just make sure you do this for those people that are going to be taking to the race in 2022 50 years after you did it yes. what what could you say look here's my little word of wisdom for you well i i think even if they're being paid I really hope that they have fun doing it. I really think that is an essential element. Um, I life on those boats is is really different. And uh, I, there was a legend regatta in Alicante a few years back. I think yeah. a couple of um, round the world races ago, and I got the chance to sail on one of the modern boats, and it was amazing, absolutely. I just couldn't believe how fast it went. Um, I think, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, maybe I wouldn't want to change places. Maybe I would. I don't know. But uh, I really admire what they're doing today. And um, no, I, I, I think uh, certainly one word of advice is that if they're trying to make up their minds, they have to do it. Absolutely. You it's got to be done. You uh, have to take part. I think that uh, I think that that's very wise words indeed. So we will leave it there. Bush, thank you very much, um, and I am going to cross my fingers that before too long I get to see you on Sayula in Alicante because that would be something pretty special. Okay, well I'll I'll have a glass of wine waiting for you. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> 